News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Ten people have been killed, at least ten others wounded as Lunar New Year celebrations were going on in a neighborhood in Los Angeles. But let's find out more now about what has happened and what we know at this point. Joining us now is our global news correspondent, Reggie Giacchini. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. So we know now that they have they believe they have found the person responsible. Uh, yes, we, we we are under the impression that the uh, that the suspected gunman, a 72-year-old man named Hu Can Tran, uh, is the one who was responsible for this. He was found in a white van, uh, dead from a an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound, which would make the total number of lives lost in this event uh, 11. But as you mentioned, 10 people were killed. What police are still trying to determine here, though, is a motive. There are reports that this man did have connections to to this dance hall uh, where this Lunar New Year celebration was going on. He met his ex-wife there. What is unclear at the moment is any connection to the victims, five men and five women. Uh, the, the coroner is still uh, trying to determine uh, identities for that to be released. There are a lot of unanswered questions this morning and a lot of families that mm-hmm. are grieving. Do we know kind of how this unfolded? Like what happened? So we know that on Saturday night local time in Monterey Park that this suspect went into this uh, this dance club uh, and ultimately started opening fire uh, and police arrived within just a couple of minutes. Uh, the 72-year-old fled to uh, another ballroom uh, several kilometers away. Uh, it's reported from an eyewitness who spoke with the New York Times that, that he was wrestled with and the gun was taken out of his hands before he fled that scene again. We don't know what the intent was, if there was a, a potential here to open fire again inside uh, a second uh, location. But ultimately, again, the question remains is why did he do this? He uh, is reported to have lived, you know, a couple of dozen kilometers away from this uh, dance club in the first place. So why he was there, was this a a potential um, uh, issue to deal with uh, domestic violence? That is what local police, uh, along with assistance from the FBI, are trying to determine. Okay. And so tell, what did we know about kind of the manhunt? Uh, how long was the suspect kind of on the run for? Several hours. Uh, I mean, by the time that, uh, you know, pictures were, were coming out, the helicopters were overseen, uh, it was the middle of the day. So, you know, we're talking about more than, than about 12 hours passing before uh, this suspect was ultimately boxed in by police. Uh, it was a several hour standoff uh, between authorities and uh, the 72 year old man before we heard authorities say uh, a couple of gunshots were heard from with inside the van. Uh, and then the, the driver was seen slumped over uh, the wheel. Again, the the suspect uh, apparently dying from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Uh, You know, that doesn't, you know, kind of end the story because it makes it more difficult to try and figure out what the determination here was, what the motive was. The the president has unlocked assistance from the Department of Homeland Security to try and uh, give some more uh, support and assistance to the local officials that are on scene. But obviously, this was uh, this was a devastating moment for this community. Monterey Park, uh, the vast majority of the population is uh, is Asian. Uh, Some of them are our first generation Asian Americans. And this was the first Lunar New Year celebration since before the pandemic and after several years of targets and attacks against the AAPI community. So this is now um, a city, a community that is reeling in grief uh, and fear about what could happen next. All right. Well, Reggie, thank you so much for that this morning.
Thank you. So Reggie Giacchini, our global news correspondent down in Washington, talking about what happened in California over the weekend. And that Lunar New Year celebration, apparently in Monterey Park, that Los Angeles neighborhood, is one of California's largest, attracts tens of thousands of people uh, to celebrate there. That is the crowd that was kind of there on Saturday night when this happened. So local authorities have identified the suspect as a 72-year-old man. And that in and of itself is apparently a bit unusual. Uh, there's a, a organization called the Violence Project. It's a nonprofit research center that tracks mass shootings in the United States and kind of the statistics behind it. And according to the Violence Project, the median age of gunmen in mass shootings in the United States over the past 60 years is 32. And so the fact that you have a 72-year-old man potentially involved here uh, is unusual. The thing is they're still working on getting a motive down. I know that authorities are actually having a press conference on that this morning, and that is the biggest question. Why would someone do this? What is the rationale, the reason behind this? Uh, That we will have to wait to find out about. I'm sure they're trying to track that down, and uh, we'll keep you posted on that story. This is Mornings with Simi. And yes, it is time for us to talk some federal politics. And that is because the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, and his cabinet are kicking off a three-day retreat today to talk about their priorities ahead of Parliament's return. So what are those priorities and how will they impact you? Well, joining us now to talk about that is Mackenzie Gray, our global national reporter. Good morning, Mackenzie. Hi, Simi. So what do we know about this retreat? What's going to be going on? Well, the Prime Minister has kind of outlined some of the key things that he wants done and, and how he comported himself last week. He went around the country talking about economic issues. He went to you know, critical mineral mining facilities. He talked about how they really want to ramp things up there. And, and that's going to be the number one thing. We're going to be hearing from the Bank of Canada on Wednesday if they're going to increase rates. Most economists have been saying that they're going to increase it by another 25 basis points. Inflation's still high. It's coming down, though. You know, these are the issues that I think a lot of people are focused on right now. The Liberals have been a little late in terms of handling them, playing a bit of catch up right now on that. And that's why I think Mr. Trudeau is going to focus in on that, too. But it's also kind of a training camp a little bit for the Liberal MPs. They've been off for a month. I think they got to you know, resharpen their political instincts a little bit here, too, being a bit retrospective in terms of things. I think they'll be focusing on, you know, we saw transportation and the travel season over Christmas was a real disaster. Uh, not as many issues, I think, on the government front, but Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives have been effective at trying to tie that to them. We've heard from Omar Al-Gabba, the transport minister, saying that they're going to be changing the Passenger Bill of Rights to make it more difficult for airlines to be wiggle out of paying people when there are flights delayed. And I'm sure lots of your listeners either have friends or themselves who went through issues like that. And the other thing, too, is, you know, how do they handle the NDP and the deal that they've got? Jack Meets has come and said, we need more health care funding. We want the dental care plan, and we want to just transition for energy workers. The budget's going to be coming up in the spring. What kind of money and what kind of priorities do they put in that to make sure that the NDP still support them? Yeah, is there a timeline on that dental plan deal? Because I heard Jagmeet Singh saying late last week that they wanted it, the NDP wants this in 2023. Yeah, it's a part of their agreement that it gets done throughout this period. But, uh, you know, and the Liberals are on track by all accounts to, to get to that point, you know, it's easy for Mr. Singh to talk a big game, though. Uh, it, it, you know, he might be all hot, no cattle at this point in time, because if you look at the polls, Mr. Singh would be no better off and might actually be in a worse position if he goes to an election. He has a lot of leverage right now. 
the NDP are the fourth party. The Bloc have more seats than them, and the Bloc just runs 70 candidates in Quebec, and they still get more than the NDP at this point in time. So Mr. Singh might want to push for that, but the idea of actually going to an election when the NDP do not have a lot of money and probably won't win a substantial amount more seats, uh, I think might be a bit foolhardy politically on his point. And I think the Liberals know that, and they know that they have Mr. Singh in a somewhat difficult political position. You know, when you talk to Liberal insiders, they say, look, we're happy to run the next election on which party is the most progressive when it comes to implementing dental care. And they think they can eat Jagmeet Singh's lunch saying, look, sure, this guy fought for it, but we're the people who actually brought it in. And if you want a government that's going to get you kind of left-leaning change, a progressive government, you can't vote for the NDP. You have to vote for us. That's the strategy the Liberals are going to take. And as much as Jagmeet Singh wants to kind of bellyache over an election, I don't think it's happening because he's going to bring the government down anytime soon. Right. So is, is the government, do you think, feeling any kind of a squeeze on that then, as you say, with those progressive policies on that side and facing the very real threat of an economic slowdown and a possible recession in 2023? I think they're feeling a lot more heat on the, on the right with Mr. Polyev than they are on the left. Uh, you know, Mr. Trudeau has a, has a fairly long track record on the left and doing more progressive things throughout his time here. Uh, in the, in the center right area where I think they've been bleeding people, uh, and where I think a lot of Canadians are in particular in a more challenging economic climate, that's where Mr. Trudeau, I think, needs to, uh, shore things up. You know, by all accounts, you talk to any liberal, they recognize that they were late to the game when it comes to inflation. Christian Freeland was just still talking about transitory inflation, you know, well into when this was a problem. And Mr. Polyev does have the chops to say, I was standing up in the House of Commons in 2020 saying inflation was going to be a problem well in advance of it actually becoming that. So he has a leg to stand on on that front. Uh, you know, the, the one positive, if you're a liberal, inflation is coming down and it's coming down pretty quick. I don't think that means interest rates are going to come down when you talk to, you know, chief economists at the bank. Uh, but inflation coming down will help them and take the pressure off them heading into the budget, uh, probably in late March. Right, but they also have a lot of pressure coming from the provinces too, don't they, about demands for different things like health care? Well, and it seems like, you know, it was a bit of a gloomy picture when it came to health care. I just even say a month ago, Simi, I would have been betting that the Liberals would have been able to pick provinces off one by one and do what they did the last time they got a health care deal, which is say, okay, Newfoundland and Labrador, we'll give you one, Nova Scotia, okay, NBC, okay, you. But it looks like they might actually be able to come to a group deal, which I would not have bet would have actually been the case just a few months ago. All sides provincially and federally seem to be quite confident they'll be able to get something. In large part because we saw Francois Legault, the Premier of Quebec, and Doug Ford in Ontario say, you know what, we are willing to give some kind of concessions to the federal government when it comes to handing over data or agreeing to kind of national standards for health. We've heard this from the the feds. We're not going to give more money to the provinces unless they're willing to have some kind of oversight over how that money is spent and they share data. They point back to the pandemic. You know, the, the health authorities in various areas are still using fax machines. It's antiquated in terms of getting that information together. Uh, They want to reform that in exchange for a boatload of cash. So I don't know when we're going to see a healthcare deal. There's been some rumors that we'll have a meeting between the premiers and the prime minister sometime in February. Uh, But they do have some pressure on that front. But that's money that I think a lot of Canadians and even Pierre Polyev can't argue about uh, wanting to be spent at this point. Right. Fax machine. That kills me. All right, Mackenzie, thank you.
Thanks, Amy. That is Mackenzie Gray, Global National Reporter, talking on the three-day cabinet retreat that the federal government is going on. That's the prime minister and his cabinet. Uh, They will be doing this for a couple of days to talk about their priorities ahead of the fall sitting of parliament. Uh, They'll be in Hamilton, uh, Ontario. They've had had a couple of these actually in BC before as well. The big question is going to be what will they do for Canadians who are really – feeling the squeeze right now with the increased interest rates and the economic slowdown. Uh, So we'll be talking more about that. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about some of the stories in the news this morning. Well, how about this settlement? This $2.8 billion agreement that the federal government has come to to settle a class action lawsuit uh, dealing with B.C. residential schools. This is a big deal. So this particular lawsuit involved members of a BC Indigenous band who'd attended residential schools as day scholars. But let's break this down now. Joining us now is Rachel Ann Snow, who's an Indigenous legal advocate. Uh, Rachel Ann, thank you so much for being back with us. Good morning. Hello, Simi. Uh, I'm good. Thank you. So what, what do you think of this deal? Is this progress? I don't think very much of this deal, <laughs> and I don't think it's any it, it's progress at all. Okay, why? Well, for one thing, this uh, it's not just BC bands. They were they. It was the BC bands or Godfrey'son. It was uh, Swetnick. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. And another band in BC who were uh, basically the forerunners or the people who put in the claim. But if you look at the list. Uh, of schools this affects, it includes uh, day scholars from across Canada or other schools, except for New Brunswick and PEI, I think, where there were schools that were primarily Catholic schools we're talking about. Okay, so do you feel like it doesn't encompass enough people or enough circumstances? Well, this is a different claim because the day scholars of these schools were not included in the McLean settlement, which is... uh, Indian residential or Indian day school claims the federal Indian day schools because there it it seems to me that the federal government ran those schools so the federal government was willing to put out a payment uh, acknowledging the harms that were done to students but in this claim if you look look at it, it wasn't included in the the federal day school action uh, because it was under I guess the other organizations what that's what the my research, my research showed me it was Catholic entities and whatnot. So that tells me that they somehow got out of the big claim or the main claim. And it's very watered down, this claim, including the fact that once, they, once, once people um, sign off for this, they can only do like uh, specific harms and no sexual abuse. So you feel it's too limited then? Yeah, it's a limited claim. And... Even on this, uh, the claim that they're even uh, the one that they finally settled for the two point eight billion, which is looks to me like it's over twenty years. So when you break that down, it's not a huge amount again for cumulative or collective claims that that a community would make on losing their language, their culture, and uh, whatever whatever that collective harm is. Right. So this is a very. It sounds like it's very broad. Well, it's, uh, it sounds like it's very broad because then it has less impact, right? Because Canada was disingenuous in this as well. They kept uh, challenging this claim. They did procedural things. 
uh, in the court system, they would not uh, agree to fund these day scholars. It was quite a lot for the day scholars. And I think at this point, uh, after they found the, uh, uh, the, the graves at Kamloops, that uh, there was a heightened um, responsibility for Canada to do some kind of action. So this was their response. All right. So then what would you like to see happen here, Rachel? And like, how can this be improved? Well, for one thing, I don't like the idea that it's $2.8 billion. I think it should be, I think Canada should sum up exactly what the amount would be per year and talk about how many students are affected. Because it, it doesn't sound like, um, to me, it sounds like $2.8 billion is going directly to survivors. It, it seems like that's the message. That's not the message. This was specific on uh, the cumulative and collective harms for culture and loss of language. So that can never be replaced. And that is um, more systemic. Uh, There's a number of factors that would play into this. And Canada is not, again, properly uh, reporting. And they are also not saying why these day scholars were not included in the Indian uh, day school, federal day school um, where there was harms and uh, automatic CEP, common experience payment, right. similar to the residential schools. It's, it's just different. So, And it seems very uh, like it's a slap on the wrist. And they were mostly, mostly Catholic schools. What about access to this then, Rachel? And like, is there enough? Will people know about it? The people who should be getting some of this money? I always wonder about that. Like, how will they find out about this? Well, for one thing, it's not a whole lot of money if you break it down to cumulative claims or collective harms for communities. It can be, you know, maybe if it comes down to like a million a year um, for First Nations who were affected by this, and then you divide that by the number of schools or communities affected, divide that by the number of people in a community. Like uh, for some of the claims, let's say uh, St. Paul or St. Mary's in Blood Tribe, which is southern Alberta, they have 15,000 band members on that reserve. How are you going to do a cumulative claim or a cumulative uh, program for that amount of people that is actually going to have some kind of, um, that is actually going to have some kind of force? And so it's not a lot to talk about to even say, you know, well, they're getting some money. Uh, No, they're, they're actually not getting very much recognition and it's being presented as, they're getting something, but in fact, they really are, they're getting nothing. Well, who has to decide all that then now? So, like, what happens at this point? Well, at this point, you know, it is the federal, the federal government uh, does stand in trust for First Nations. But it seems like it was a special claims person under the Ministry of Indian Affairs, as well as um, the litigants and their, their lawyers, who decided probably, you know, this in the long run, this was the best the best way forward for people now, survivors, to get some kind of compensation. So to me, it's very sad because, and there have been people even who made the claim who have passed away and will not see, maybe their descendants can make a claim. But it's just so, again, it's, uh, it's miscommunication on the part of the Canadian government to release this information that they're willing to do this. When, uh, like a school like St. Anne's, where there was, possibly, you know, the electric chair use. It says in this claim, if you take this money or these cumulative claims, you can't sue for anything else 
So it, in fact, shuts out that argument that they've been trying to make in a separate Canadian court system. Okay. And we still need more details on this, too, don't we? Because they said more terms of the settlement are going to be released next month. Yeah. So, again, it's just whittling it down, making it very sectoral and specific, so that by the time it finally reaches the actual survivors, I doubt that it will be very much funding. And more importantly, the federal government will write the parameters of what is allowable for a community to um, heal itself. So how is that in any way Indigenous-owned or Indigenous-driven? Rachel Ann, thank you so much for explaining it to us this morning. We appreciate your time. Okay, thank you. Good morning, or have a good morning. You too. That is Rachel Ann Snow, Indigenous legal advocate. We can always trust her to give us kind of really straight talk on these issues because you saw the press release, you heard in the news, federal government has come to a $2.8 billion agreement to settle a class action lawsuit with members of a BC Indigenous band who attended residential schools as day scholars. But as Rachel Ann breaks it down for us, uh, the, it's all in the details there of which there doesn't seem to be very much right now. Uh, so we'll be hearing more about that. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now, we're going to talk about a story that you've undoubtedly seen in the news, and it's about the Vancouver Police Department not allowing officers to wear these what's called thin blue line patches on their uniform. That decision coming from the police board uh, last week. And you may have been wondering, well, why? What is so contentious about these? Joining us now to talk more about this is Rob Gordon, professor of criminology at Simon Fraser University. Good morning, Rob. Good morning, Simi. Was this decision kind of inevitable, you think, the way this, this kind of gets talked about everywhere? Yes, I think so. And it's also a national trend uh, to prohibit these additions to police uniforms. So true to the word uniform, uh, they're being, uh, it's clear that police departments and services across the country uh, are not wanting their members to be uh, wearing these kinds of things. I mean, there there is no end to it. If you think about it, it, it you, you could you could, in an extreme situation, have police officers advocating all sorts of things via um, uh, patches and badges attached to their uniforms. So, uh, what we need and what we obviously um, police boards are uh, endorsing is the idea idea of a uniform uniform to which you cannot add anything um, uh, as, a, as a wearer of that uniform. And right. I think that's a, that's a good idea. Yeah, and that makes sense. But why was this particular patch divisive? Well, it, it started like so many things to do with uh, policing in Canada. It started in the United States um, and was being worn by police officers down there. In fact, they've got a website you can go to to buy this stuff but worn by police officers down there to, to try to um, advertise the agonies of being a serving police officer and the dilemmas that they face uh, and the problems that they face uh, and an attempt to, to underscore this with members of the public in particular so that every time you ended up uh, calling a police officer, whoever turned up would be wearing one of these things. It's really in your face. Um, and I don't think that that is at all appropriate. I mean, it, it, it demonstrates a lack of impartiality 
uh, it's a divisive symbol, and a lot of uh, a lot of groups, First Nations groups, for example, uh, have found it really offensive. Uh, and so, you know, I think wisely, police boards have said, "No, take them down, take them off. Uh, this is not an authorized part of your uniform." Right, and I guess even among police officers, was this divisive among police officers as well? I, I think some were opposed, others were uh, nonplussed about it. Um, but there's a pressure that is applied to particularly young police officers by by the older, more experienced members. If you uh, join the police service and you go to a detachment or to a unit, unit uh, and they're all wearing those badges, you're going to feel obliged to do that, whether you want to support that particular idea or not um it, it's just simply uh, you no choice really right. it, uh, it, it's like well i mean there's lots of examples you could use but anyway i think you right. get the idea i do has this come up before though rob like does this periodically come up in history in history oh yeah well i mean the, the if you really drag back um the original uh, expression was the thin red line and it referred to uh, particular regiments of the British Army in the Crimea uh, who stood firm uh, under attacks of different kinds short of personnel um, but they nevertheless prevailed so you know the history goes back that far it goes back to uh, to the Crimean War uh, of the uh, of the 19th century, um, but uh, this of late, uh, the idea of a thin blue line is something that has slowly emerged. I'd say over the last probably the last 10 years, maybe a little less, but it's it certainly come up every time that there's a, a crisis involving police public relations for whatever reason. Uh, these kinds of ideas are circulated and then translated into um, into action in the form of badges and things. Right. So is it a Canadian thing? Does it also happen in the United States? No, it all originated in the United States. And as I say, there's a website down there uh, where, that you can go to um, and buy the equipment that you need. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. Somebody has adapted the, the United States flag which has a, a thin blue line through it for wearing on police badges, uh, police uniforms, adapted that for the Canadian context. And um, I actually don't know of any other country where this uh, has, has surfaced. Um, so it's kind of interesting, but not surprising, given uh, the close relationship geographically and otherwise between ourselves uh, and American law enforcement agencies. Okay, so do you feel like this puts the matter to rest then, that this was like a necessary thing for the police department to come out and say? Oh, it was most necessary, that's for sure. I mean, they needed clear signals. And I think it's become uh, or became a, a, a union issue. Um, and police, uniform, police unions have been flexing their muscles of late because that's a recent phenomenon as well. So um, you've got a couple of trends that are, are converging. Um, and I, I don't think uh, it, it's over by any means. I think we'll 
continue to see situations where people insist on wearing them and contrary to policy uh, and they end up being disciplined and then the union responds to that. So I, I think there'll be a, a, some you know, fluttering uh, over the next uh, few months, but it will eventually die out. All right. Well, I'm sure we'll be waiting to hear more about it at some point. But Rob, thanks so much for your time. Okay, Sibby, you're welcome. Thank you. Rob Gordon is a criminology professor at Simon Fraser University explaining that decision that you probably heard about where the Vancouver Police Department, the police board, came out and said that no, officers are not allowed to wear those thin blue line patches on their uniforms. And they're saying, you know what? It's just all patches. They're saying there's just no unauthorized adornments and they are going to enforce that uh, with this as well. This is Mornings with Simi. The Vancouver Canucks have a new head coach, new coaching staff this morning, but that doesn't mean the headaches have gone away for fans, that's for sure. Let's talk about the changes and really what we have seen from the team, the team's management over the last week or so. Joining us now is Matt Sakaris, co-host of the Sakaris and Price Show. Good morning, Matt. Good morning, Simi. And uh, boy, what the Canucks wouldn't give for the serenity of Dolly Parton and Kenny Rogers. <laughs> right. Islands in the stream, huh? I think that's probably oh, playing okay. in Jim Rutherford's office somewhere as he's saying serenity now, serenity yeah. now. Listen, right after this weekend, they need some serenity. No kidding. And I listened to that press conference yesterday, too. I thought it interesting that Jim Rutherford was kind of blaming it on leaks in the media where I thought, no, oh. I feel like it's symptomatic of something bigger here. Well, and especially since he's been the source of leaks in the media uh, over the years, and particularly during this chapter. Now, yeah, I mean, it sounded like they came out and wanted to do the right thing. Uh, they apologized to Bruce Boudreaux personally. They apologized to, quote, anyone I've offended. And you know things aren't going well when you drop that phrase in a press conference. Uh, but he just couldn't help himself, right? It was the speculation's fault. It was the uh, outside noise's fault. And Look, we've got a 73-year-old uh, hockey lifer here at Hall of Famer who has worked the majority of his career in Raleigh, North Carolina, where I think you deal with one reporter uh, and uh, not not exactly the most rabid fan base, and, and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I, I think he's having some trouble adapting to a Canadian market that is as ravenous for hockey and hockey information uh, as Vancouver and British Columbia are. All right, so Matt, what happened here? What went wrong for Bruce Boudreaux? Well, bad process, uh, an interventionist owner who uh, thought he would go and, and ride to the rescue and play, uh, play hero and uh, fix the problems last year after they fired Jim Benning, the general manager, and head coach Travis Green. Francesco Aquilini, the chairman, personally went out and hired Bruce Boudreaux um, and then went about hiring a president of hockey operations who went about hiring a general manager. So ask backwards, bad process. This coach was not the choice of the GM and the president of hockey operations. Uh, that became clear over the last year. I mean, Jim Rutherford certainly uh, uh, was harsh in his criticism of Bruce Boudreaux, the way the team plays, the way the team practices. And it all came to head here in the last week where uh, Hockey Night in Canada had the report a week ago that they were going to hire Rick Tockett as the new coach. They let the current coach twist in the wind. Uh, we were joking yesterday, maybe a little macabre, that he's the first NHL coach uh, to uh, to serve working notice for his employer. And um, it all culminated, uh, frankly, uh, in a moment that I think Canucks fans can be very proud of, Friday and Saturday night, with the serenade of Bruce There It Is and all the compassion and empathy they sent the coach's way that the organization was unable to muster. Yeah, it sure seems like, Matt, that we are the talk of the hockey world and not in a good way. 
Oh, are we ever, Simi? Uh, you're not the only interview I'm doing here today. Uh, China, Winnipeg, I did Ottawa last week. Yeah, I, I mean, you can make the argument that the Vancouver Canucks are the worst-run franchise of the 32 NHL member clubs right now. Um, so, yeah, everyone likes a good train wreck, and the rest of the league and the rest of the hockey world is looking in at our market and at our team and going, what is happening over there, and with good reason. And I know a lot of fans are also asking, well, what is so special about Rick Tockett, this new coach that Jim Rutherford absolutely had to have him? Yeah, that, that's the interesting part here, Simi. You moved heaven and earth. You dragged your brand and your own personal reputations for Rick Tockett, who's a below 500 coach in two stops with Tampa Bay and with Arizona. You dragged your brand, you dragged your personal reputations, moved heaven and earth to hire him now in a season that's already lost. Like, it's not like Rick Tockett is coming in here as Boudreaux did last year with the possibility of getting the team to the playoffs and realizing the goal that they set out. So, look, they trust him implicitly, Rutherford and Alvin. They worked with him in Pittsburgh. They think he's going to be the coach that uh, instills the type of culture that they're looking for here, which, of course, uh, is the ground floor to winning. Uh, But the process in which they went about it and the timing of it is very, very strange. And I, I can, I, I sure hope if given a do over, they would consider doing things a little differently. Yeah. Hope, right. The, uh, the eternal word yeah. of the Canucks fan, the hope. Well, and, <laughs> and I use that word Simi, because I just don't know how self-aware they are. I'm not sure if they actually understand and realize the damage that they did to their brand and with their fans over this past week. And what about I'm not with- sure that said, like they didn't articulate that clearly yesterday. They seem to be more willing to push back against it and be a little defiant in the face of it rather than a full acceptance. Right. And what does that do for the potential hire or the attraction of star players to here? Like who wants to come here if this is the way we do things? Well, not only that, Simi, but I'll do you one better. Like is Elias Pettersson going to want to be here? I mean, they can talk contract extension with them as soon as this summer. Quinn Hughes is under a long-term contract. Is get to a point where he goes, enough is enough. I don't think this organization is capable of building a winner. I want to go elsewhere. So I'm more concerned about the great young players they have on the team than about attracting free agents. The thing about free agency, they don't have any cap space anyways. I mean, they poorly manage the salary cap on top of everything else they poorly manage. So, you know, to me, that's a lesser concern uh, compared to the guys who you have in-house who have been career Canucks and that you want to keep her. Now, Rick Tockett is the new head coach. He also has not experienced the lens, let's say, of a Canadian right. hockey market. You mentioned Arizona and Tampa. How much of that is something that we should be watching? Yeah, well, I'll give Rick Tockett this. First of all, I thought he had a pretty good day uh, yesterday. Of the three gentlemen on stage, I thought, I thought Rick Tockett performed the best. He's a pretty good communicator, and I think that's going to serve him well. You know, he was also he was a hard scrabble, hard nosed player. And I think he's willing to take things head on. I don't think, at least in the early going here, that 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 he's going to be the type of guy who you know melts under any kind of criticism or gets sensitive uh, to reporters' questions or anything like that. So I think that's going to serve him well. There's going to be an adjustment period here, no doubt. But you know, even yesterday he was talking about technical things about when the weak side defenseman is supposed to pinch and whatnot. So I think he understands that he is stepping into a much more sophisticated hockey market than Phoenix or Tampa Bay. And if he's able to communicate with the fans on that level, 
uh, and curry goodwill because let's face it, I mean he's been he's been handed an awful set of circumstances here by his superiors. Uh, but I I do think he's the type of communicator and personality that might be able to turn it around and and curry a little goodwill from the fans in time. Right? Didn't he already delete his Twitter account though? Because he sure did. Yeah, yeah. a lot of scrutiny yeah. on that, isn't there? Yeah. But I mean that 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 shows to me that he's you know there's some you know he's wise to the politics of all this. Okay, so I guess the key here though, Matt, is if they win, people are going to forget all about this. Yeah. That's what they have to do yeah. now. Well, yeah, it's the same in all. Look, uh, uh, sports fans have forgiven a lot worse than what the Canucks have just done to to their fans with winning, Simi. I mean, it is the great deodorant uh, in this world. Um, But they'll likely be trading Bo Horvat here in the next couple of weeks. They haven't done a lot of winning to date. Schedule gets easier. Uh, You know, I think they might be able to finish strong here if they can uh, adequately replace Horvat, or at least everybody picks up a little bit of the of the slack, but, um, you know, you take a look at the Vancouver Canucks and you compare their roster and you compare their organizational depth to the other 32 teams. And, uh, I, I would be a little surprised if, uh, if the winning starts in earnest here, the great deodorant, I'm going to keep that one, Matt. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> hey, thank you. Appreciate Have a it. good day. That's Matt Sakaris, co-host of the Sakaris and price show, uh, talking about the state of our Vancouver Canucks today. Lots of fans, pretty unhappy. Pretty unhappy. How unhappy are you, though? Enough to get off that bandwagon? Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about the Stanley Park train. It has been part of the fabric of the park for a long time, but there are concerns now about why it seems to have fallen into disrepair or wasn't maintained enough. Couldn't be used for bright nights over the holidays, right? And there are a lot of questions about what has happened and how it got to be this way. So this morning we have with us Steve Jackson, who's the Director of Business Services for the Vancouver Board of Parks and Recreation. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Amy. Thanks for having me. What is the state of the Stanley Park train today? Uh, so we do have an engineering consultant on site. They are on site this week. They were on site last week as well. Um, we're working with our staff as well as City of, Van- City of Vancouver engineering staff to get the mechanics on site and figure out what exactly needs to be fixed and develop a game plan to get that all done. So that only happened now, though, even though there's, this has been kind of going around for a couple of months? Well, so we got the TSBC shutdown order towards the end of September. Uh, we then worked as fast as we could to see if we could get an uh, engineering consultant in time to try and achieve the uh, Bright Nights event. We weren't able to do that. So we did shift gears in November and December to providing our staff time to support the Bright Nights event that did take place, which was quite frankly, a successful event from from my perspective. A lot of folks came out, they enjoyed the lights. It was disappointing not to have the train there. And then as of January, we've been shifting our gears now back to the train, no pun intended, to get that asset back online. Right. Okay. So how, I guess, Steve, a lot of people have questions about this. Is How was it allowed to get to a point where it had to be shut down? Well, they are old trains. Um, you know, we don't want to lean on the pandemic excuse too too many times, but the reality is we did have a number of pressures during that time frame. In speaking with my colleagues at the City of Vancouver and their engineering team, and again, those are the mechanics who maintain the train, they've had a lot of pressures on their end too. Um, a lot of staff shortages. I've heard upwards of 40% staff shortages of mechanics. So, you know, when you're dealing with a large fleet of assets across the City of Vancouver, we're talking dump trucks, garbage trucks, and as well the train, we make sure we prioritize those in the right order. Um, 
you know, we knew these trains had some issues and we've been maintaining them uh, as best we could. We did not expect TSBC to provide us with that shutdown order. And at that time, we've been taking the steps we could to bring them back online. Okay. And so what is the commitment then, Steve, to getting it fully back up, running, operational and in tip top condition? Well, you know, we're going to have to go through this work first and figure out what exactly is broken, what needs to be fixed, and get an estimate of what those costs are going to be. I know from conversations I've had just on the side with some of our commissioners, they're keen to get the train back online. They see it as a priority. Once we've got a better sense of whether we've got the current budget capacity to get those trains fixed to the standard we need them to be at, or whether we need some more money, we'll then, you know, contemplate that with our board and figure out how we can get that done. But but there's no, you know, behind the scenes lack of interest to get the train back on the tracks. We're doing what we can with the resources we have. How high of a priority is this? And can we say that it is a priority to get it done in time for the next holiday season? It is most definitely a priority to get it done for the next holiday season. Typically, our first event of the year with um, significant attendance is Easter. So, you know, we need a, a lighter resource load for that. We don't need all of our trains running for that. We hope to have at least the one or two running in time for that. And then we're going to put all of our eggs in another basket, if you will, to make sure those trains are up and running in time for a ghost train as well as bright nights. As those are our sort of key holiday events. And, and they do generate significant funding for the park board and bring a lot of joy to community. Right. Has there been a lot of learning, I guess, around this then, Steve, in terms of like how to make sure something like this does not happen in the future? Because it sounds like you get into a hole, it's really hard to get out of that. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And again, we're, we're talking with the engineering consultant. Our game plan here is to make sure that we've got an effective maintenance plan in place to make sure that we prevent um, major downtimes like this uh, and make sure that those assets are on the tracks and operating for the residents who want to ride them, tourists, and everyone who comes into Stanley Park. Um, yeah, again, right now we don't know the extent of what that is going to require and what sort of budget capacity we're, we're going to need. But until we have, once we have those answers, we look to make sure that we've got the funding in place and that the priorities are in the right places. Right. You said they're on staff today to kind of start this process then. Like how, what is the timeline like for this, do you think? Well, we had some early work done last week and we've got some early indications of what work needs to take place. Um, we'll get some more details in the coming weeks. The intent of the engineering work is to provide us a pretty clear set of um, game plans in terms of what we need to get done on those trains to bring them back. I'd be hypothesizing now on how long that's going to take, but we've got, you know, the right people on the job and our staff are really keen and um, working closely with that group to make sure that we do this efficiently, fast, but also cost effectively as well. Right. Do you wish maybe, you know, the park, this all sounds very reasonable. This makes sense. Like what everything that happened though, why didn't the park board say something sooner about this process? Well, I mean, quite frankly, we put a lot of, again, efforts into still hosting the Bright Nights event in November and December. I know there was a lot of interest in the train and why it was down, um, you know, taking some time to answer all of those questions, which, you know, we did take some time to answer questions and make sure we were transparent there. Um, continuing to talk about it uh, was going to detract the time and attention from the pressing issue, which was hosting Bright Nights and supporting our Burn Fund partners. So, again, with, with the new year ahead of us, um, bright nights behind us and uh, another one soon to come 12 months from now it sounds far away but it's going to be here before we know it we're now shifting gears to the fixes okay what do you want people to know then steve about the stanley park train i think the most important thing to know is we do have a, a team of really dedicated staff they adore the train as much as the visitors do um they get just as disheartened when they can't operate it 
Uh, and so we are prioritizing it. It's high on my list of focus areas. Uh, we want to make sure we go through the process the right way. We don't take any shortcuts and we don't, you know, um, you know, try and fix things that don't need to be fixed quite yet. And that's where we're looking to rely on our experts. And then we're having a lot of conversations with our city of Vancouver colleagues as well to make sure that, you know, they're aligned with the path forward here and, and we've got the right resources, funding people, um, external consultants, if need be, to make sure that these trains are functioning. It, it is a priority. We love the events they host. We love the joy it brings to the faces of people who visit. And we also recognize the importance it has for our partners, for specifically the Burn Fund every year in their fundraising efforts. Well, listen, thank you very much. Uh, and listen, keep us up to date on how it goes. We certainly will. Thank you so much for taking the time with me this morning. Thank you, Steve. That's Steve Jackson, Director of Business Services for the Vancouver Board of Parks and Recreation, talking about the Stanley Park train and saying, yes, the park board is committed to it. And they are starting that process today uh, in terms of getting engineers on site to get things up and running again. If you want to weigh in with that, simi at cknw.com.